Hello and welcome to The Personhood Project. I'm your host, Aaron Tyler Hand. In this podcast, we explore poetry's ability to provide the tools necessary to process trauma, lead towards personal growth, and help reduce recidivism in the carceral system. If these topics are of interest to you, we ask that you follow us on Twitter and subscribe wherever you are currently listening. This week, we are joined by Vincent Cooper. He is a San Antonio, Texas-based poet and author of the chapbook, Where the Reckless Ones Come to Die, as well as the full-length poetry collection, Zarzamora. Thank you so much, Vincent, for allowing me in your home and for sitting down with me. Uh, Thank you so much for having me a part of this project. I really appreciate what you're doing out there, and I'm really honored to have you here. I know just through conversations with you outside of this podcast that you've listened to the podcast. So thank you for like being a supporter of us. I mean, we've been working, you know, trying to get to this moment of recording for two or three months now. So I really appreciate you, you know, taking the time and sitting down with me. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad we're doing it. I, I actually was, uh, you know, been going through a lot of medical and I, I didn't want to cancel this at all. So I'm really glad we're doing it. <laughs> well, thank you. I really appreciate yeah. that. Um, kind of, as I mentioned earlier, I thank you for allowing us in your home. And uh, I think a big part of your book, Zarzamora, is kind of where we are located now, this area of San Antonio. So could you talk a little bit about um, place being something in your writing or more specifically kind of this area of San Antonio and how it's been like an inspiration to what you write? Oh, absolutely. So I'm actually not from San Antonio, uh, which is, you know, something I've, I mean, I just have no control over, but (laughs) I, I would love to say I'm from here. I'm originally from Alhambra, California. But my family's from here, uh, mm-hmm. going back at least 100 years. And uh, this place has always been sacred to me, other than the lore of San Antonio itself. It's always been kind of like a, you know, like a spooky town with, you know, funny stories, Robert Johnson and, you know, uh, Oscar Wilde showing up and <laughs> Donkey Lady. You know, the, <laughs> you know, other than that, my family here... And particularly the West Side um, is where they they're from, and I lived there for for a long time. And you know, it was it wasn't always pretty, but it was it was a beautiful childhood. You know, with all these character, you know, these uncles and aunts that I grew up with, and and it matters to to talk about those stories, uh, especially if they were in the barrio, so to speak. We're we're in one right now, really, in mm-hmm. the South Side. And, um, you know, I, I could probably live anywhere, but I've chosen to live here, uh, you know, for my family. Yeah, no, that's great. So you're saying like uh, you're kind of your family and like your your family's history being here has been a big kind of inspiration for your writing. Um, is there anything else kind of like specifically about this place outside of your family that, you know, like you see that like you have to capture on the page something about it? Yeah, there's a the condition of us. So as... I identify as a Chicano male, and for me, as far as public published works, you know, I don't. There are publications out there who, in the past, have discussed, you know, our our gente, our people, and but not not too many are published. Everything's with indie or small press, mm-hmm. which has really increased over the last ten years. But prior to that, it was kind of here and there. You know, you really had to be Gloria Anzaldúa or yeah. Jimmy Baca. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody who who really captured a lot with their work and their, um, you know, their story. And so, San Antonio for me, you know, it, aside from my family, there's 
there's the there's the people there you know with with their stories and mm-hmm. uh, the the look of it the feel of it the conditions you know the the tragedies you know even even the hero stories the people that come up big you know the graffiti on the wall the dogs the drug dealers on the side you know these are all things that we saw you know growing up and they they were impactful mm-hmm. you know a lot of our you know we we were kids just to give you an example of like me and my cousins, you know, we were kids here on a ranch, you know, and we, then we were in the West side and, you know, I'm here, I work and have a family, they're in jail. Yeah. You know, they, they went down a different path. They have families too, but it was just generations of incarcerated, you know, uh, family members. So, you know, it, it's telling these stories, mm-hmm. you know, and, and for good, you know, for better, for worse. Yeah, definitely. Um, one thing I noticed reading your work is that it's very like narrative heavy. Um, do you try to write in a way that you think is like kind of more accessible or, you know, you like you're talking about you're you're trying to share these or like shine light on kind of this area and the people. Do you think you're also trying to make your work accessible to them as well so they could read it and feel like seen through the work? Thank you for asking. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, especially with my latest manuscript. Uh, I think people are like, wondering not wondering but they're saying okay so poetic devices you know and and getting too technical for people Uh, i think people do get lost and and my writing for i guess the average reader or Mm -hmm. the average joe people that don't even read will go i can read that and i get it and i dig it as opposed to some genius you know form out there (laughs) which there's nothing wrong with that at all but they all get lost in that. So I've always stuck with a narrative. Believe it or not, I have put in forms like haikus and things like that in my writing, but people never mention them or talk yeah. about them. They're yeah. like, you did? And I'll have to point <laughs> it out, and I'm like, look. And then I'll go through the forms or, or like an ekphrastic, whatever, I'll do it. And they're like, huh, well, I just know you for, for that. And I'm like, well, that's cool. Yeah. You know, if, they ever, if they ever notice it, fine, but... I've stuck with with a with a narrative uh, for for my writing. No, I think I agree. I mean, I grew up obviously not in the same conditions, but I grew up in working class household. At, like my parents are, you know, high school graduates, no college really, so they don't have a connection to uh, poetry in the same way I do. But I've like when I'm writing it, I think like I want to make this accessible. Like I want to I want to write poetry that my mom will be able to read and she be able to like understand or take something out of it. And, like I want to write so that like she feels like a connection to it as well. Like I think about those same things when I'm writing. Um at least like similarly. Like I I understand um I've been fortunate enough to study poetry, but I don't want to limit who reads my work to the people who are also studying it. So I think, yeah, similar to what you were saying. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, my relatives have read it, and I've talked to people from the West Side that are from here. And uh, one of the funny things that they say is, you wrote a book, Sasamora? I'm from Sasamora. You know, what did you say? And, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm just telling, talking about my family. And, and they're like, Maya, you don't know. I'm from here. I got stabbed here. I, you're some crazy situation. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, what's your story? You know, let's hear your story, you know? Nah, you know, they get all defensive about it. And I'm like, well, look, you know, I'm right. Maybe I'm writing it for you. Yeah. You know, your story and, and, and all that and, and representing that part of it. And they have read it and I've gotten positive feedback from them. Yeah. So it's 
one question I kind of had kind of related to what we were talking about, like how is poetry kind of received in the neighborhood? Like, um, do they are, you mentioned they have read the book, like, and I mean, I'm sure just like most average people aren't reading poetry, but how are they kind of accepting the poetry or how are they like taking in the poetry? I think most, most people kind of take in what, you know, what they would consider, what I would consider poetry is maybe through music or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious how um, they took in your book. Well, I've been very, uh, I guess, just really thrilled with the response that I've gotten. It's really been here and there, Mm -hmm. but people have reached out either through messages or in person to say, look, I read it and I thank you. I love it. I also have an Uncle Danny. Oh, or yeah. I also have this, yeah. or that, you know, poem about your grandfather that was to a T, you know. Mm-hmm. And those are the gold. That's the priceless stuff that doesn't go on Amazon. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't go higher. You know, it's literally the the personal thing. It's a personal read. Yeah, very personal. And so those have come to me. It, it they've they've been emails and 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 face to face interactions and. Pretty good. I, I haven't had anybody tell me, like, no, this is inaccurate. <laughs> Maybe my mom. Like, how can you say that? You know, and, and yeah. but, but, you know, she just, people said, how, how do you portray the family that way? Mm-hmm. Like, why would you say that they're junkies or, you know, uh, negative? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it, I don't think, I'm, it, it's just what it is. Yeah, you know, it's it, the reality it, of it's it. It's the reality. And yeah. I, I'm not in a situation where we don't know that we all know that we're aware of what it is and um a lot of people one thing that they've mentioned is that maybe i'm the king of writing toxic masculinity (laughs) you know yeah like you know all he does is write about men toxic men but those people are not really reading it Mm -hmm. because if they read it they'll notice that i'm describing this person uh, and the experience I had with them. And I'm father hungry. You know, I was looking for a father to have a mentor. And this was the mentor. Yeah. You know, for better, for worse, a prisoner, a drug addict, and their sobering moments. In no way am I pardoning them. <laughs> they were not there for their family. We had a, in, in the next books that you'll read, you'll read more about them in other situations in my life. And you'll have a, a bigger view of them and me. So it, it's not that I'm uh, raising a hero from, from that. I'm really not. And I think people might have missed that. I, I really do address how empty and lonely I am. No, I think I definitely got that. I like, thank you. Like you sent me a, a copy for me to read ahead of time. And I, oh, yeah. I really appreciated that. And uh, just sitting down with it, I, I felt like, like, as you mentioned earlier, it's, it's like, it's the reality of the situation. Like you're not trying to glorify anything. You're not trying to like say like, this is the way to be. It felt like this is just how I grew up. And this is just, you know, what the neighborhood and the lifestyle kind of pushed me towards. And like, this is kind of like, you know, what was coming out of it. So um, hopefully people aren't looking into it and seeing like, Oh, he's upholding some toxic masculinity or something. Cause I think, you know, it's beautiful and it's real and it's raw. And that's just, you know, the reality of, how you know the situation you growing up in Zarzamora? Yeah, thank you for that. I mean, yeah. I it it uh, even if it's just a discussion, I'm not afraid to have it. Yeah, you know, with anyone because I think uh, Chicano men, uh, you know, they didn't go for therapy. They didn't they didn't do any of those things that you need to do to to become a better father or better themselves. And it's okay to put it out there. 
Yeah. I mean, it's okay. Definitely. When you're sitting down and writing it, I mean, especially such like a raw collection, did you have like kind of like fears, like maybe I'm exposing too much or like pulling back or were you just like, this is what needs to be shown and this is like, I'm just going to let everything out of me kind of thing? Uh, I think the work, so this book is probably double its size, mm-hmm. edited down to this. Mm-hmm. So the poems that are not in it are probably a little bit more, I don't want to say crass, but um, blunt, you know, really, yeah. really ugly or frustrated and didn't really go with the flow of where the book was. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know why I pulled them out. Maybe because it does just say like, oh, wait, you're just making this person look bad. You know, you're yeah. just really putting them down. And I'm um, like, yeah, I guess so. It, I don't know why it came out that way. Maybe that's how I really feel. Yeah. And I, I pulled some poems out because of because of that. So, yeah, I definitely did do that in the editing. Yeah, I mean, and you don't want your mom being even more upset with you. So, yeah, you got to pull those few out. Yeah, understandable. Earlier you mentioned you have some poems about your Uncle Danny. I'm hoping you can kind of talk about those letter to Danny poems in your book. Well, actually, those letters are real letters. Oh, are they actually real letters? That was, I guess, another question I could have asked. Yeah. No, it's okay. Uh, so, the the if you can see it on a screen, I was a teenager in Vegas, high school, and he was uh, incarcerated here in Texas. Mm-hmm. I was really depressed in, in Vegas. I didn't want to be there. And my mother had told me that, well, Danny's in jail, you know. And I said, what's his address? I'm going to write him a letter. And we wrote letters back then. And um, she's like, you're going to send him a letter? I'm like, yeah, I wrote letters. I wrote yeah. letters. I was a, maybe a weird teenager. I don't know. <laughs> so I wrote him a letter. And he responded right away. And as I went through high school, he was locked up. Mm-hmm. And as he got out, I graduated. So it was kind of like this was our time yeah together and we there's a lot more letters there's a whole box full of letters you still have them i still have them yeah um but i only chose these few to put in there i actually had more but i cut those out Mm -hmm. um but this was my therapy i mean i i would run to the mailbox and go pull the letters and uh and read them and like weep (laughs) and um the the reason I have them in there is for his uh, authentic voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted this book to also have another uncle's artwork, so that I could publish them, you know, posthumously. Yeah. Uh, so that Danny has it, and uh, <laughs> my uncle Jody's artwork would have been published too, but um, the publisher didn't do that. Oh. Uh, but it was a prison art. Oh, cool. On, on, you know, all that. I wanted the, the look of the book to be that. Was that something that was also sent to you? Or is that something... Yes, Jody had... My Uncle Jody had uh, sent it actually to my brother mm-hmm. and my mom, So, but they were always hanging in the house. Oh, that's so cool. So I'm like, you know, if we can get an artist who can do this style for the book, it, that's really what I want. But yeah. that didn't happen that way. But I wanted to publish the uncles that way. Mm-hmm. So Danny, uh, as a person, was really good-looking man. Um, he always kind of sung when he talked, like he had a lot of music <laughs> with him. Yeah, and usually he was shirtless <laughs> and tattoos, and you know this kind of John Travolta '70s hair. <laughs> and uh, he was always a really cool guy, um, but he was usually on something. Um, but during this period, I would assume he was sober and lucid, mm-hmm. and uh, we wrote, and he was this 
my brother or my dad or my uncle, you know, yeah. and everything. Unfortunately, though, it was only for this period because once he got out, you know, when we'd see each other, it was brief and not like the letters, mm-hmm. you know. But I wanted his voice in there, and I think a lot of people dug that or missed that about those that generation. Do you think? Um, do you think? writing letters was a like an easier way for him to open up and like maybe brought you closer together that like kind of the in-person didn't have or were there other things kind of going on that you know might have aided to that distance when he came out i i think it was all a surprise i don't think he was expecting to hear from me yeah uh and and when he did i think in the first letter he says like i'm shocked you're writing to me and I guess I was shocked too that he answered. Yeah. And and we continued on this this uh, writing collection. I guess I don't know where my letters are, but mm-hmm. I would I remember what I said, which is embarrassing. <laughs> teenager venting. Yeah, we've all and, yeah we've yeah. all been there. <laughs> and so I can only imagine he's he was forty years old in a jail, going like, God, this kid, you know, <laughs> you know, go get a girlfriend already or mm-hmm. something. Like, no, that's a problem. <laughs> and. Uh, but uh, I, I was surprised. He was surprised. So we, we went through it. He, he wrote to my mother as well and, and to my aunt, you know, whoever would write and probably send money mm-hmm. and uh, to him. So um, prior to him being incarcerated, the relationship that we had was just uncle and nephew. Yeah. You know, so this was the closest we ever got. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, I kind of bring that up because we talked about, or you mentioned earlier how just growing up in the community, like, you know, therapy isn't something you see you do, but, you know, writing is a form of therapy, like essentially, like even writing a letter. So like kind of locked away and like your only connection with someone is through writing, like you're he's going through like this kind of therapy, you're kind of going through a therapy talking, you know, you're talking to each other with this, that then when he comes out that like, you're, you're missing that aspect of it because then you're back to like, you know, the culture that you were in and having to like go by these norms and things like that. And I think like, even for myself, like feel comfortable writing more than, you know, talking with people sometimes just because like you're not looking at them in the face and you can kind of just like get everything out without feeling like judgment or anything. But yeah, that's just kind of what I was thinking with that question. Yeah, absolutely. Uh I would have loved to have said that the story continues, but it really doesn't. Yeah. Um, but the therapy, yes. Um, I had no intention. I actually did have no idea what I was going to do. I grew up with uh, not a competitive thing, but the, the the family I was staying with, you know, the, the older cousin of mine was an artist mm-hmm. who was putting art out in L.A. He was from the School of the Arts. And another cut, and his younger brother was a musician, oh. and so they were constantly around, you know, like future TV actors, and you know this, you know the, this community of artists, mm-hmm. and they would be over the house. Oh, that's cool. And so, you know, my son and my son's great, and my son and these talent and and this overwhelming, <laughs> and I was always like, Kurt Cobain, I'm I'm dark, and I'm not yeah. gonna make it. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm really a loser, and I had no idea, but. Um, when my uncle when my uncle Jody passed, uh, it, it actually was a was a jarring, uh, traumatic thing for me because I had gotten close to him before his death, mm-hmm. and my mother and I and him we had made a plan to get an apartment together, and uh, he passed. So then 
my mother made a quick choice to move to Vegas, which for me was like the end all. Yeah. And I wrote. Mm-hmm. I wrote about his passing. I could not take watching him. Just, just he was 37 years old. Yeah. You know, and he died of AIDS. And uh, it was just, I couldn't take it. So I wrote. I wrote page after page. And I hid them away from my mother. Mm. And she found them. Oh. What's this? You know? <laughs> and, and honestly, I wrote so much. I, I filled notebooks. I read a lot. Oh. I, w- I started to read. And all this was just on my own. Mm-hmm. I read and read and read, mostly beat poets and Bukowski. And, uh, and I filled up notebooks. And it was always about this or fiction. I would do some fiction writing. Yeah. And uh, of course, I was a teenager, so I don't know how good it was. But <laughs> I, had a, I had boxes full. And unfortunately, I think my mother threw them all away. Not mm. maliciously. Yeah, just yeah. Just when she threw moving boxes mm-hmm. get misplaced. So. Understandable. Something we, I, I kind of want to touch on, just like thinking about, you know, working with incarcerated writers and then writing poetry. But I'm sure they're also like writing to family as well. So I'm just, as someone who was receiving letters from someone incarcerated, could you just talk about maybe a little bit like how emotionally that felt, like how it helped you, like as just someone receiving those letters? Yeah, I mean, I've said it before that those letters really saved me. Mm -hmm. There were so many things I could not talk to my mother about, or at least I thought I couldn't. You know, she was a baby boomer and and I just, I was lost, you know, And, and Danny was cool and at the same time you know being that authority or that father figure for me Mm -hmm. so it meant a lot to get the letters his handwriting was pretty good he was very funny (laughs) uh constantly joking and uh you know really supportive yeah he he said the the things i needed to hear at that time and that that meant everything to me. Yeah. I had put it out of my head that he was incarcerated. I I was just talking to him, mm-hmm. and um, and I thought, what a beaut, you know? What what yeah. this guy was probably had so much potential, but he probably dropped out of school. I, I believe he did, and was in the life that life ever. You know, he really didn't father his children, and his children are incarcerated, mm-hmm. and um, it. It's tough. It, it really is. But um, they served as the therapy I needed yeah. at the time. I wasn't getting it from friendships in Vegas or teachers or, or my mother. It was him. Yeah, that's, I mean, just shows how important it is. I mean, even some kind of connection. So that's super great that you had that. Yes. You mentioned how when you moved to Vegas, you kind of saw these letters um, from your Uncle Danny and potentially all the writing you were doing as kind of like what was help you survive, you said. And thinking about your collections, Arzamora, it's subtitled Poetry of Survival. I'm hoping you could, you know, maybe talk a little about that subtitle and what it actually means to the collection and kind of for you. Perfect. Well, my publisher actually put that. Uh, my publisher for this book is Jade Publishing, and uh, they added that. Mm. On there. So as far as the cover goes, I, I had already said that I wa- I'm not an artist, mm-hmm. just so that everybody knows. But I like okay. Well, I want. I think I want since Zarzamora means blackberry. Yeah. I wanted it to have like a blackberry color mm-hmm. and the design and all that and old English just to be <laughs> cliche or whatever. Yeah. And um, and then he added that when he showed me the he emailed it to me and I was like, what is that? He's like, that's just what I got from it. 
That's mm. what I felt yeah. after I read it. Mm-hmm. Like this is about surviving, and I was like, "All right, you know, I, I I've never had a problem with anybody and what they get from it. Mm-hmm. You know, if that's what you got from it. That's what you got from it. But yeah, it it, it does tie in. Uh, it, it's tough, especially you know, living in these streets and and in the time and the drugs, the gangs, the violence, and everything like that. You know, to yeah. come out of it." You know, it is survival. Yeah, definitely. Kind of going back to earlier, you mentioned when you were in Vegas, you were reading poets. I'm just kind of curious, like, how you got into reading poetry and how you um, got into writing the poetry. And then, I mean, this is kind of a larger question, so feel free to, like, take your time with it. But, like, and then how it became kind of a therapeutic tool for you, like, just kind of the encompassing world of, like, poetry for you and and its, like, roots. I had a teacher, a high school teacher, Mr. Lee. And uh, he was a poet. I mean, he came in and he was an English teacher and he was very poetic. Uh, he wanted us all to write, you know, as part mm-hmm. of his his deal. Like, let's just write. And more of a, I would say more of a poetry, not necessarily proper English. Yeah. So from that, I honestly want to just say I did this on my own, but I, I can't pinpoint the influence but when i said okay i I definitely want to get into um ginsburg Mm -hmm. um and i got into ginsburg i bought a book like his collected poems a big thick book i don't know you know like 800 pages yeah and i really dug everything from his um i want to say it's his new jersey early beginning Mm -hmm. part of it uh i really dug that poetry I, i wasn't into kerouac but uh, everybody else really fascinated me from that group yeah. um, of Burroughs and them. So I was stuck on that, and I read everything from mm-hmm. the classics, Catcher in the Rye, and non-poet, you know, non-poetry things. But eventually I got to Bukowski as a teenager, and that meant everything to me, even <laughs> though that's people... You see, I told you he was toxic. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think... It, I felt the same way. I mean, I mean, I got to Bukowski as a teenager too. Yeah. It was just something about connecting with it at that age. But yeah, but, go but, on. Yeah. Right. I don't endorse anything. Yeah, like no, but totally. At the same time, um, I don't want to say he had a narrative way, but he definitely had a stream of consciousness not style that just was like, what did he just write? Did yeah. He just, I woke up, you know, went to the toilet, you know, this, <laughs> that. She called, you know, whatever. Yeah. And, and it just had this, this hook at the end. So, um, honestly, I did that on my own, and I, I just I, I kept on reading those poets uh, until I couldn't, you know, un- until I was fulfilled with everything that, that was there. Mm-hmm. I had not reached out to uh, Chicano poets until later on. Mm-hmm. So, it was that and, like, world poetry. Um, so, poets from Europe, uh, those were my, my starting points. Yeah. You know, but that helped keep the writing going until I got to like Jimmy Baca and Luis Rodriguez. Mm-hmm. When I got to Luis Rodriguez, my cousin handed me, I think he was always running, which wasn't poetry, but um, I don't believe if I recall, but he handed it to me and I read it. And what I was reading was where we were living mm-hmm. at the time. Oh, so and I was like, no way. You mean you can write about this? <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and he did it so beautifully. And I met, I've met Luis over the years, and he's been, you know, wonderful. And it's just amazing that he did it. And when I, when I saw that he did it, 
I thought I can do this. Yeah. I mean, it's it's just about seeing, you know, yourself, your community, your people on the page. It's just like, hey, I have a connection to that. I could write that. They're writing that. Like, just something clicking in your brain. No, I think we all owe him a lot for uh, putting that book out and all the books that he's put out. But that was huge for me because the streets, you know, and everything that's in there, I'm like, we're right here. I cannot believe it. So uh, it, that definitely helped that part of me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then from there, just kind of going into, you know, the typical topics of the podcast, like how has poetry kind of been a kind of a therapeutic tool for you, like later in life, like now and just kind of processing like where you grew up and things like that? You know, the, the remembering everything uh, helps. There's still butterflies or grad, you know, this gratification after I write a good line. Yeah. You know, it still, it still does what I need it to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with my next book, it won't have poetry in it, but, um, poetry for me in the beginning was filling up notebooks. Mm-hmm. You know, let me just write every day, you know, just so I can get that out relationships, the work, you know, the, the job, the, the, the bus rides, everything. Yeah. And um, I filled up notebook after notebook after notebook. I told myself, if I'm not doing at least 100 poems a year, I'm slacking, <laughs> you know. And uh, so that's always gotten me through a lot. Yeah. Um, as I've gotten older, it's it's been less, you know, lessened and with kids and, uh, you know, other issues, you know. So, so now when I get back to it, uh, it's... It still does that for me. Mm-hmm. It still gives me that release I need and um, that fulfillment. And, you know, my wife, she's she's basically like my first editor. You know, she'll hear it and she'll, if, she's, if she looks at it and puts it down and she says, good, what else you got? <laughs> then I know it was really good. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> but if it comes back with red marks all over it, then, you know. We have an argument. Yeah, it's always <laughs> important to have that close editor. Yeah, <laughs> but she's she's helped me so much and uh, gotten me through and pushed and, and brought out more. Uh, I don't know when we're going to do this, but I think I'm going to do a re-release of, of Sarsamora later. Oh, nice. And um, with the artwork that I wanted to oh, do. Oh, that's so cool. And um, I'll probably in the notes section add all the the way Victoria made that poem a little bit you know with revisions oh, just a little dedication to your wife right and just the so work you can she's see done. the revision process That's so cool and see where it went because a lot of it the original is so raw yeah and and her her influence and and all that really you'll see it you know people really if they dig it they should give her like a high five <laughs> that's amazing um you weren't actually like you don't have like you don't have an MFA in poetry I believe I don't know you haven't take have you taken like college courses in poetry the closest I came to college was when I was in the Marines my sergeant said you need to go to school it's free go and my friends and I we kind of laughed and we're like sure sure enroll us and they enrolled us and it was a school in the middle of the desert (laughs) and we chose not to go yeah and fair. we got in trouble and we just never went and i regret it so much now uh if i could go back and do it i would but i was in the marines i didn't quite take that as a like an offset 
Mm-hmm. It, to me, it, it wasn't the same, but um, still, it was. It's something I still regret that I never furthered my education. But you still found your way to poetry. Like you don't have the formal training of poetry outside of sounds like one high school teacher who like was really influential. So, um, could you just speak a little bit about like your dedication to it and like your drive for it? Because I feel like a lot of people see like, oh, I have to get an MFA, I have to study English as an undergrad or something. But like you're being you're a successful poet without that. So I'm just hoping you can talk on that a little bit. Yeah, thank you for that. I, I, I mean, I want to say I'm very fortunate. Uh, to have had things published, you know, and I, I know traditionally that, well, you know, like according to my wife, we talk about it all the time. Um, the work matters. What you put out matters. It mm-hmm. sticks with you forever. Make every line count. Um, you know, use all your resources. Believe in the editing process for that. So um, she's a guide for me. She's been a guide for me prior to that, though. Really, you know, it's it's just a, a ton of reading. Yeah. You know, I, I've read countless books and after countless books, and that was really what I went by is whether we're talking Plath or, you know, other contemporary poets, you know, it's it's reading it over and over and over again and, and really feeling it and going like, this is what I can do. That was, you know, these are villanelles or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. I can do that too. I can do a sonnet, if it's going to be a sonnet or form, or if it's just going to be straight, you know, free verse type thing. Yeah. And the free verse has always been what I've what I've honed in on, and, and then from there, chop it down and pretty it up a little bit. So really, a lot of that was on my own. And then once uh, once Victoria and I got together, she was already like saying, look, you got a great voice. You know, it's authentic. And it's honest, and it's the the scenery is good, you know. Let's let's chop it up here. Let's do that. Let's do this. So that that's helped me with the success part. Yeah, you know what I mean. Otherwise, I think I'd have fifteen page poems. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I definitely know that feeling. I my partner as well. She's a poet, and I think that was we feed off each other and just like help each other, and you know just having that person that's close to you is definitely super helpful. But I think even more than that, like you said, the reading, just sitting down and reading and making sure that you understand like, you know, what a poem is, what a poem looks like. And then, you know, starting with the basics, just trying to mimic some things and see how that goes. And then just see how your voice kind of creates out of it. You mentioned a wife. I know you have kids. I got to meet them before this interview, too. Could you just talk a little bit maybe about like balancing work, life, family balance while still trying to write? Because it sounds like obviously like you let yourself off the hook for not writing 100 poems a year anymore, but just kind of like how that balance still works for you. Yeah. So kids are definitely full time Mm -hmm. and work is full time. I work as a child support officer for the state of Texas. So the job is intense mm-hmm. right uh, our older kids have moved on yeah so part of the getting away with a lot of things are the are not there anymore because <laughs> the older kids have moved on and now we have the younger kids mm-hmm. so um i'll be honest with you i don't have time anymore yeah so um when i utilize my notepad and my note apps mm-hmm. or if i even get an hour on a weekend um, I'll I'll write as much as I can and chop it down. But what happened recently is I found some kind of clarity as to what I'm doing. 
uh, overall. And originally, I thought I was going to be like a poet's poet, mm-hmm. meaning I'm going to write poems and submit them constantly yeah. and seek publication of single poems <laughs> and maybe one day compile a book. Yeah. And I thought I was going to do that, but that gets old quick. <laughs> Um, I had my first like eight submissions were accepted. Wow. And I thought that's a feat. (laughs) And I got accepted into the Mokondo Writers Workshop, which was a big, you know, it's a big deal. And I was like, is this all you need? (laughs) You know, and then poetry is (laughs) easy. It's so simple. Just do it. And then 40 rejections. Yeah. So I I was brought down to, you -hmm. know, brought down from the cloud really quick. So, um, now, with this latest manuscript, I'm sitting here going like, okay, I realize what story I'm telling here and my, what books I'm putting out. Yeah. And that, that helps me now cope with the fact that I'm not writing 100 poems a day. Uh, I know that time will probably come again maybe when the kids are a little bit older. Uh, but now, it's just whenever I can. You know, I'll, I'll be at work and I'll have my notes out, up, app up. Um, I'm notorious for writing at work <laughs> uh, on little sticky pad notes, post-it notes, um, just be- well between all of us. My book, Sasamora, I printed the whole thing at work. Oh, I love that feeling. <laughs> Printing work, use the work ink and pages, yeah. So when, <laughs> so when um, this was at my previous job and... Like, it was so many pages. Mm-hmm. And they would say, we're out of toner and all this stuff. <laughs> and, and they're like, they, they changed it so that you had to put a code in now oh. and, and all that. So, but be, before that, uh, they were like, what are you doing at the printer? You're just standing there all day. I'm like, I'm printing my book out. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, whenever I can, I will. Um, this next manuscript of mine is really quick and short mm-hmm. poems. Oh, cool. And that is going to be because of the time I had. Yeah. I had intended it to be a little bit of a bigger book, but the poems are very quick and very, you know, direct, and, and I, I like that too. Mm-hmm. No, yeah, I think that totally makes sense, like how you balance life and how the poems coming out of you are kind of mimic that. You have more time, you can see a lengthier thing come out. You yeah. have little amounts of time, like, all right, how can I fill this time and, you know, get it to fit, you know, my free time? So that's... That's really cool that you've kind of seen your work adapt around that. Yeah, absolutely. No, uh, again, it comes back to like what my wife said about making the lines really count. Yeah. You know, and you can be effective, you know, with a few lines, you know, and and instead of a a three page type of poem, you you can still be effective. And and that's that's kind of where I'm going to with this next book. But just wherever I can, you know, whatever I can fit in and. You know, in the mornings, if I'm not listening to the podcast, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm listening to music here, and, and at the same time, I have my notes up on my phone, and I'm typing them through. Yeah, well, if any of the listeners are looking for uh, to pick up his next manuscript, it's ready. It's ready to go. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I'm going to transition here to the second half of the podcast. So for listeners who might be the first time listening, the Personhood Project goes beyond just this podcast. We take poems from the poets in the episodes. We took Vincent's poems. We went to the jail that we work with. We taught poetry to the students there with his poems as inspiration. And then they write poems kind of inspired by his work and inspired by, you know, the feel and everything else, along with some writing prompts that I gave them. 
I'm going to have you read two poems, so this is a little different. Uh, two of the writing prompts I did for your poems, Do Not Resuscitate and Barrio in Heaven, they kind of mixed together for the students, and they kind of, you know, wrote poems that were kind of inspired by both of them. So if I could have you read both of those poems, and then I'll read the writing prompts, and we'll kind of go from there. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So the first one is A Barrio in Heaven. And this is how it goes. Mike convinced God to let my Theos live in a barrio in heaven. It was an everlasting version of the Cassiano and Alazon courts. Murals on the sides of them showcasing Cesar Chavez, Corky, Ruben, Gloria and Saldua, and Dolores Huerta. And when they died, they stay true to themselves and familia. Danny has his arm around an old girlfriend who also died too soon. They sit on a bench, her face resting in his shoulder nook. Jody sits on the first step of his house, smoking a cigarette, enjoying the nothing, staring at people in cars driving by. Mike is firing up a grill, shaking a new chicken rub on leg quarters, then air guitar to Rolling Stones, honky-tonk women. Cousin Monica is telling her father, Tony, about her kids and the way San Antonio gentrified. Tony signals an ice cream van to buy snacks for all the kids playing in the street. It's a small world plays in the background. Hefe stands by a black iron gate staring miles and past forever, cigarette in mouth, scratching his cheek, watching over his boys. They all look ageless, no bullet holes or evidence of AIDS, waiting for their mother, sisters, and remaining brothers, waiting for me, maybe. If my living relatives ever look on heaven scenes, they will find our reckless ones laughing in the streets, safe and sound, in a golden barrio full of old-school Chicanos. At night, there are noises in the darkened corners of my bedroom, up by the crown molding and behind red curtains, flashes of black by the windows. I know it's Tony or Danny asking a question I can't hear. I tell the darkness, we are fine. I wish my children could have met you and known you. We love you and miss you. Nothing has been the same since you left. Having a living, breathing, loving familia was the top of the world. Beautiful. Thank you. I really feel like we've we've had such insight just in our conversation about your family and just hearing it like this just expands so much hearing that poem. Could you also read the um, Do Not Resuscitate for us, please? Of course. Uh, do Not Resuscitate. She died last night from an overdose here in San Antonio, brother said. His voice was firm. We've had this conversation too many times. I closed my eyes and saw Monica running in chanclas, cousin playing, cousins playing tag at the ranch, a memory of us laughing under a cloudless sky, her hair up in two chongos, her dress light blue, my hand reaching out to touch her. Today, Grandma says she's so tired, she wants to die. 
Tramadol, pill bottle emptied. Do not resuscitate. Written on the paperwork at the senior community living apartments. She has seen almost all her sons die. Ernest died in her arms as a toddler. Tony, her favorite. Jody, her least. Mike, the most important. Danny, the most handsome. And Hefe, too, a husband over 50 years. And now her grandchildren are dying. All the relatives that matter to her are dead. My children crawl all over her living room, smiling, chasing each other to the bedroom, then back to grandma's slippers. She sings songs in Spanish, claps her hands, kisses them, smiles back at them. And when we go back home, she still wants to die. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Such emotional pieces. So I appreciate you first sharing them with us to share with the, the writers in the program and for reading them. I want to read the two writing prompts based around these poems just for um, anyone who wants to try to utilize the writing prompts for their own writing. Um, on top of that, we'll have them on our website. You can find a link to it on, um, you should be able to find it wherever you're listening to this. But In the barrio in heaven, Cooper imagines a party or family reunion with his loved ones that are in heaven. He imagines conversations he would have with them if slash when he gets to meet them again. He focuses on the delights that they would share and the traits that he misses of theirs that he knows they would still have. Use this concept to write a poem about what you would do with and say to a loved one who has passed if you got to see them again. And for Do Not Resuscitate, Do Not Resuscitate is a poem about the emotional weight associated with losing your loved ones. In sharing the losses that his grandma has faced, Cooper is giving insight into many tragedies that have faced his family. With this in mind, write a poem about the important people in your life who you have lost. While you talk about the pain of losing them, don't forget to celebrate their lives and share how important they were to you. So kind of based off those two writing prompts, we have three poems here that the the writers in our program wrote kind of based off your work. Could you read um, My Friend David, and then we can kind of discuss it? My Friend David, the man who tears me from the streets of hell into his home of hope and safety. He became a priest, but died too soon as a father figure that will be missed. It's such a short poem for those um, listening that haven't had a chance to read it yet. It's only four lines, but like these four lines are very impactful for like a eulogy, basically, for his friend David. I think one thing that stands out to me, um, again, these poems will be posted online so y'all can look at them later, but how it's written out now, um, the first line, a man who tears me from the streets of line break hell into his home of hope and safety. That second line, hell into home of, in hell into his home of hope and safety, really, just really puts into creates a great picture for who this person was to him. And then we get into the next line, which is another stanza. So it's two two line stanzas. He became a priest, but died too soon. So we get this idea of like him creating 
this place of safety and pulling someone out of hell, then we see this person is not just a friend, but as a priest and someone working in the church, which I think was a really powerful move, kind of not revealing it all at once, but we kind of get, we peel back the layers on who his friend is. Yeah, absolutely. I, I got that too. I was really excited to read these uh, poems and, and I, I got that feeling too. And I was telling my wife, I'm like, you know, these are actually really, really good like mm-hmm. they could maybe not not you know for this to come out the yeah. way they did was, was pretty good and and i got that vibe and i'm happy that this this is what came out yeah no totally um the poem is shorter but like the emotion and it was impactful and it i felt a lot of do not resuscitate i felt a lot of barrio in the heaven in this piece just like the the importance of this person to them just like in your pieces the next one we have here is an untitled poem. It doesn't go into like a specific person, but it captures the like the feeling and kind of the essence of, you know, memorializing someone. So can you read this untitled poem for us, please? Of course. Untitled. We face things in life that seem harsh at times, and the clear message is hindsight. The lesson and meaning. So when life takes you places you didn't intend to be, just know you'll see lesson and reason in the future. Yeah. One thing that kind of really grasps me about this, um, as people will read when they go on the website, is this this was written in all caps. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it feels like such an exclamation. Like it feels like we face these things in life. It's not just like something subtly coming out of someone. It's like, this is like a passionate feeling of coming out of that. Like that was a choice, this person, you know, to put everything in all caps like that. Yeah, no, I love that too. And and one thing I, de- I definitely wanted to mention was um, I attended all these relatives' funerals, right? Mm-hmm. I saw them dead. Yeah. You know, I saw them take their last breath uh, for many of them. So this does serve as my eulogy, you know, for them. The eulogy I didn't even say mm-hmm. at the funeral because I... I, I just, I, maybe I'm too young or I felt dismissed. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I, I'm happy that uh, people got that. Yeah. And, and let this out. I mean, that kind of goes for what you're saying in this one. Um, just read it over again. We face things in life that seem harsh at times, line break, and the clear message is hindsight. That's a lot of what you were doing in your writing as well, is just like, what has hindsight afforded you that you can kind of reflect on things differently? Just like it says here, the lessons and meaning, lessons and reason in the future. Like it's kind of exactly what you were trying to pull out when you were writing your book and in these pieces that we shared with them. So just seeing this writer connect with it in that way is like really powerful, I think. Absolutely. The last poem we have here that was inspired by these two poems is called I Remember. Could you read I Remember, please? Yeah, I especially dug this one. I remember, stronger than life itself, softer than a baby's milk, milky breath, always so kind and tender. Dear Grandma, I remember, sitting in the kitchen in the early morn, the smell of frying bacon blesses my nose, fresh juice dancing in the blender through blurry eyes I remember. Hard to believe that it has been so very long, but you're still larger than life. Mystique carries on through many trials to navigate without your wisdom. 
and truth, I won't falter or surrender because of what I remember. Yeah, this poem, the the title of I Remember and then the repetition of I Remember showing up three times in here is just like, I remember the first time I read it, like getting it or getting it in from them and reading it on my own. It just felt like we feel the passion for this grandma here. We feel the the importance that this woman played in their life. It's, yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, I, I think I even wrote a poem called I Remember uh, years ago. So that that resonated. You know, I like, you know, milky breath. I like fresh juice dancing. Bacon, you know, frying bacon pleases, you know, blesses my nose. I mean, all of that's just gold. It's It's perfect. Yeah, there's so many beautiful lines here. I think my favorite is... Um, fresh juice dancing in the blender through blurry eyes. I remember, yeah, specifically that through blurry eyes. I remember because the poem starts off with kind of like someone waking up, so you could picture like you know, like just your tired eyes in the morning and just like being with their grandma, but also this is a poem about memory, so you could imagine the emotion that someone's going through and the blurry eyes being, you know someone crying or like their eyes welling up just thinking about it or um, just there's so many different ways that you could take that blurry eyes line that's just that really drew me to that yeah some of the or at least when I've when I've talked to people before I've always done this you know stand in the street close your eyes what do you see Mm -hmm. what do you hear what do you smell you know those senses as well Mm -hmm. and um, I, I think he, he catches it here. I've tried to be in that kitchen, you know, in the 80s when I was a kid. And yeah. what's it look like? Okay, the walls are yellow. You know, grandmother's at the stove. It's a white stove and she's wearing, you know, mm-hmm. uh, all this. So that's just gorgeous. Yeah, it's hard to do. It's hard to take. It's hard to go back to that place for one. And then two, to like capture it in language on page is so difficult. And this, I remember Palm has done so well. The This writer did a beautiful job on it. Oh, yeah. Let's move on to the next poem here. Could you read the untitled poem that you sent us that the uh, writers got to read? Oh, sure. Untitled. Sasamora Street, where uncles would suddenly walk out of a dilapidated house, or shadow of a sappy pecan tree, or the shade of a bus stop, or backseat of a parked car. The sun would hit their black shades, a punch that never phased. And they would walk over to shake hands and hug. They stunk of beer and tres flores, the aroma of my memories. Barrio magic on streets of Manteca, a proud smile for their sister's son. Soft jabs to my stomach, firm slaps to my back, and jokes about the spurs or cowboys. Maybe lack of sex is what makes them lose, they'd say. All this in two minutes. A promise to meet again later. The brambles were cut and destroyed over time, never to grow wild. Old berries dropped on windshields, staining cars. Kids threw them at each other, yelling, blood. Hands reddened. It is the stain I miss. That ending of that poem is so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. I'm going to quickly read the writing prompt here. And again, just a reminder, these writing prompts are on our website, so anyone can access them at any time. 
Vincent Cooper uses his untitled poem to reflect on the street that he grew up on. While times might have been rough, he uses the sights and sounds of his neighborhood to celebrate it and the joyous times that were had there. What was the street slash neighborhood like that you grew up on? Talk about the sights, sounds, smells, and tastes of that street slash neighborhood at that time. Write a poem that focuses on the happy moments so that you can live in them once again. Definitely goes back to the kind of the writing prompt you were just talking about. Yeah, that's perfect. Can you read the deep circle poem that was inspired by your untitled? Yes, sir. Deep circle. The good old deep circle. A street that always has movement. This street located in the south part of town, in its own little town of Austin, where kids can ride up and down the street. Everyone basically knows everyone with its easy access to the other major streets that provide an outlet from the simple life where trouble can begin. The thing that really stuck out about this poem to me is kind of the switch at the end. Like we get this kind of this feeling at the beginning, like the street always has movement. We kind of feel the movement. We see the kids riding up and down and we see it as like kind of a celebration. But then when we get to the end, we see like the other streets are bifurcating the street that, can lead to some trouble right. so we get this person that understands the like complexity of where they grew up they see it for the place where kids are having fun but also for the place that could lead to something worse like the you know the street that could lead to you know potentially where they are as writers right now you know it almost feels like a hook at the end and uh I dig that a lot because yeah. I actually work on that on my own Yeah, to leave the last line as a, a line to really stamp, mm -hmm. you know, and leave as an image forever. And I, I really like how they did that here. Yeah. And, and then taking that idea and then kind of going back to what the title is, like, granted, like, I'm sure their neighborhood or their street might have been called Deep Circle, but just thinking of this, like, circular nature of what their street has created of growing up, you know, incarcerated, maybe getting out, just like cycles of incarceration, oh, yeah. cycles of people in and out of the street, just like the title does a lot of work that you don't get when you're first reading it. But then when you get to that last line, that hook that you say, like life where trouble can begin, you see that deep circle that that title, and it's just like that adds that layer of what that title is doing. So it's perfect. Oh, yeah. We have one final poem for you to read. It's called Elderberry. Could you read that one too? Yes. Elderberry. The street is long. The trees were abundant. We had a basketball hoop where I cracked my head across the street from the lady with the silk worms. In her tree that blocked the sidewalk, Kim and Jeff lived in the cul-de-sac. They taught me how to roll cigarettes on a legal pad and do flips on their trampoline. The C-Mart was behind us and the store owner chased us off for throwing condiment packs against the sidewall. That was my street, Elderberry. You can definitely see the inspiration of your untitled poem here. Like they, like your untitled poem kind of walks us through what the street looks like and the sights and the sounds, kind of where the writing prompt came from. And we see that here with the sights of the basketball hoop or like, the trees overhanging the sidewalks with these um, 
silkworms just hanging from the trees over the sidewalks. It's such like you you just see the image so well of what the street looks like. Yeah, when I got to Lady with Silkworms, I was like, whoa, this is this is really cool. And I, I really dug that one. You don't see silkworms much in poetry anyway. Mm-hmm. I don't really remember seeing that line. No, you don't. And uh, so that was really good and unique. Uh, and yeah, I definitely dug the the visual and, and the detail. Yeah, I think one part that really stuck out to me was the the innocence of it. Like, just thinking of incarceration in the United States and thinking of the policing of black and brown bodies, but at the same time, just like the innocence that like they're just you know kids just throwing packets at a convenience store wall packets of condiments and just like that's just like typical kid trouble that you know in the wrong hands in this like legal system or this carceral system i should say like that could be seen as something completely different but in like the world of this poem and the body of this poem we see it for what it is like this this innocent act of kids just having fun Right, that nostalgia and, and, and all that. So, yeah, yeah, I definitely see that. And, uh, I mean, it, it's gorgeous. And I, I also, I, I tripped because it says elderberry and blackberry. Is, yeah, you know, I know. That's I so like, wild. Yeah the, yeah. the neighborhoods that you and this writer grew up in, you know, could have been next door with these different berry named streets. <laughs> right. Well, with these poems that I, that I put down, uh, like, did not resuscitate, it uh, was a real situation Mm -hmm. with my grandmother um it's something that i deeply regret now but my wife was basically saying we should go see her she lives down the street and i think she's wanting people to make the effort yeah everybody idolized her kids that are no longer there but nobody's making a fuss for her Mm -hmm. and she was the matriarch you know she was the one and and i and she was really like a first mother because my mother, my mother had me and then let, let me stay with them on the farm uh, as a kid. And I, I just felt estranged from her. And for me, I think mental illness is, a, is an issue because she was older and she, she wanted it done. She was tired. Yeah. She kept telling us how tired she was. And I think, quite honestly, she could still be alive mm-hmm. if she really wanted to be. But uh, I think depression really set in on her and uh, I... I deeply regret not seeing her uh, more in those final days. Um, Avario in Heaven, it's funny that I, I, I wrote that years ago, and there's another poet named uh, Jose Olivares who wrote uh, Mexican in Heaven <laughs> for his book, Citizen Illegal. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a poem that goes throughout his book, like part one, part two. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, it's it's pretty much the same thing. <laughs> and uh, I love that. And his book is great, mm-hmm. if you ever get to read it. That's no, a great collection. Uh, but I wrote this too. I told him, hey, you know I have a body on heaven? And he's like, cool. And, <laughs> um, so, I, I mean, again, I'm, I'm really happy with these poems. I, I'm thrilled that they wrote them the way they did. I feel like, um, you know, what, what I wrote, you know, came out, came back to me. You know, mm-hmm. the way they wrote it down, like, this is how I write, in a yeah. way, you know, and they, they kind of reflected that back, and I, I really appreciate that. Yeah, they did a great job capturing what you were trying to do, but in their own words, creating their own voice out of it, and sitting down with these poems and with you reading them, I appreciate it, they really appreciate it as well, so thank you for being here. Uh, thank you. Thank you.
I want to thank Vincent Cooper for sitting down with me today. I also want to thank the incarcerated folks in our program that shared their work with us. A special thank you to our sound engineer, Nathan Parnell, and graphics designer, Jules Tunnell. Until next time, 